0: Welcome to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hanson, and each week I'm joined by insightful guests to talk about their written work and how the gospel applies to all of life. Together, we keep looking until we see God working. Wherever you're listening, welcome. I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. I love novels. I especially enjoy the classics. I even love some contemporary fiction. I grew up reading fiction, and I studied it in college. Not not everyone will share my passion for Russian and Scandinavian literature, but that doesn't stop me from commending these treasures. Sometimes, though, I meet Christians who never read fiction. Sometimes I talk with Christians who could never imagine reading a novel. They're even offended by such a waste of time when we could be reading the Bible and non-fiction works that edify believers. How much more complicated, then, are the visual arts? Protestants aren't exactly known for our appreciation of this medium. I personally claim no expertise with apologies to my one college course on art history which I loved, by the way. Uh, That's why I'm so thankful to have Russ Ramsey as a docent in his new book, Rembrandt is in the Wind, Learning to Love Art Through the Eyes of Faith, published by Zondervan Reflective. Ramsey is a pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and a longtime friend of the Gospel Coalition. Now, if you're like me and you want to love art, but you don't feel qualified, Ramsey's book can help. If you have not yet learned to love beauty, he writes, learn to love it late. We are made to achieve perfection at least on this on the uh, at least on the other side of glory, he says, beauty is glimpsing a preview of that perfection in what we make here and now of goodness and truth. God didn't need to make this world beautiful, he didn't need to make humans in his image concerned with goodness and truth but he did so that beauty might awaken us from spiritual stupor. Russ writes, This is the mysterious transcendent quality of art. Something in the liniment oil and pigment breaks through the plane of the canvas and penetrates the human soul in a way that suddenly and inexplicably matters. Russ joins me now on Gospel Bound to discuss Rembrandt and Van Gogh, Kincaid and Caravaggio. (laughs) Why you need to learn the rules before you break them. And why a great painting demands as much as reading War and Peace in one sitting. Russ, thanks for joining me.
1: (laughs) It's good to be here. That was a fantastic introduction. (laughs) My head is is spinning right now.
0: (laughs) All right, let's start this off. This is just really cool. Tell us the story of what happened to Rembrandt's painting The Storm on the Sea of Galilee. Uh,
1: In March of 1990, uh, on St. Patrick's Day, a couple of men dressed as Boston police officers hit the buzzer on the outside of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in the Fenway neighborhood of Boston. The guards buzzed them in. Uh, Then those two people dressed as police officers proceeded to tie those guards up and spend about an hour and a half rounding up about 13 priceless pieces of art which they carried away into the Boston night, and those pieces have not been seen since. One of them was Rembrandt's Storm on the Sea of Galilee, which was cut from its frame. Uh, And so if you go to that museum now, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, uh, the frame that the Storm on the Sea of Galilee uh, used to be in still hangs on the wall because of a uh, kind of a a rule in the trust uh, for that museum that if any of the mus- that the museum itself was a work of art, and that any of it if any of it was dis- was disturbed or changed, it would have to be um, added to or taken away. It would have to be uh, liquidated and, and and handed over to Harvard uh, University. And so and so that frame hangs on the wall still to this day. And you can go to that museum and see where that
0: painting used to be. Yeah, what a story. And you you talk in the book a little bit about what are you supposed to do with stolen art um and again none of these has surfaced
1: yeah no it's been it's been over 30 years the fbi has had a five million dollar reward uh for information leading to their uh discovery and they've gotten thousands and thousands and thousands of leads none of them usable or credible, uh, and so they're just they're just gone. That's where the title of the book comes from. It's, it's in the wind. Um, that that Rembrandt painting, um, and uh, and gosh, I I don't hmm, I don't know. I don't know if we're ever going to see it again.
0: Well, and you, uh, which is part of the the tragedy. And I think if I remember correctly from the book, one of the dynamics you play out is is the the benefactor of the museum, and you talk about tragedy in her life and the way she set up the museum as a sort of permanent display you know remembrance for all of time but how this illustrates that no matter what we want to preserve in this life it is still in the wind
1: yeah there's a great there's a great irony in in the uh that you know she built the museum because she because of her grief and loss of of her son and she wanted to build something that would endure something that would live she said my museum will live is what she said and um it's interesting that that the thieves cut that painting from the frame uh, because rembrandt painted himself into that painting he's in the middle of the boat and he's the guy who's looking out at the viewer and there had to have been a moment where the um the thief with the razor knife in his hand was eye to eye with rembrandt who was asking him the question that the disciples were asking jesus in the boat is and that's don't you care (laughs) <laughs> that we're perishing here? Um, th- don't you care that this is the kind of world where this sort of thing happens? And, uh, you know, I, I, it's a it's a curiosity to me, but it's also kind of a poignant thing to think about.
0: Oh, no doubt. Well, why do you hang a print of Van Gogh's self-portrait with bandaged ear in your office? Uh, it's funny. I look up right
1: now. I can, I'm, I'm touching it with my hand, um, <laughs> hanging on my office wall. Uh, so... You know, one of if anybody knows anything about Van Gogh, one of the things they know is that he cut off his ear. It's unfortunate that that's the bit of information that we have, but I think it's also kind of a general truism that that uh, it's possible for us in life to become known for um, the worst things we've done, uh, and that to be the identity. You see that in the Gospels. You know, this here's a woman caught in adultery, or you know, people are identified by their affliction or by their sin. And he cut off his ear in a You know, it's hard to know exactly why. Um, Maybe it was some sort of epileptic related fit or manic depression or something. We don't know. Um, But the whole episode landed him in an asylum. Where he had to live for an extended period of time. Back in those days, mental health was just kind of all mental health issues were all kind of just regarded lumped together as madness, and uh, so if you had depression, uh, bipolar, schizophrenia, epilepsy, even it was all just madness, and they would put you in an asylum. And so here he is in his in this asylum. Uh, recovering from wounds that he gave to himself and in, in what is the most shameful and low moment of his, of his life, because he's at the same time publicly known because of his art, um, but also publicly known because of his uh, instability. And he paints this painting of himself with the bandage side showing. And he's capturing his greatest moment of shame. And the irony is, is that the painting is worth more than anybody I know could afford to 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 pay for it because it's this priceless piece of art that that is a uh, that captures the life and the and the struggle of Van Gogh and I, I keep it in my office as a way of rem- reminding myself of the kind of pastor that I, I want to be uh, and it's the kind of pastor that doesn't conceal. My woundedness, um, but lets that side of me be seen by people and encourages others to be willing to let that side of themselves be seen as well, because there's there's beauty in letting our brokenness be seen by others, um, because there's a confidence there that uh, our brokenness doesn't define us, um, but it has uh but that but that Christ will heal it uh, and he'll redeem those things, and so I keep it in my office to remind me of the uh the paradox of we're at the same time broken and of immeasurable worth uh and that I want that kind of honesty to be uh how I approach my role as a pastor in a in a local church so that's why i've got it right there
0: <laughs> of that story, or else i tell me how you became interested in art because i think for many of us if we didn't grow up around high culture paintings and sculpture they they feel intimidating i'd say even inaccessible In short we, we don't really know what all the fuss is about i grew up around paintings but let's just say they were more like kincaid than uh, caravaggio so how do you develop this passion
1: um so i grew up in a small farming town in indiana in a public school uh and i had wonderful art teachers uh, who were artists themselves, uh, but they really just cared about us learning to appreciate art. And more, they cared about us just being in the presence of art. They, we took a lot of field trips to museums. and and um, But I had my art teacher in high school, one of the things that she said uh, to us was, she said, if you want to have a lifelong appreciation of art, you don't need to go to college and be an art major. You just need to find an artist that you feel you connect with in some way and then just pay attention to them for the rest of your life. You know, when you're in a city and you go to a museum, go look and see if there's anything by them there. And what'll happen is you'll come to know a lot about them and they'll introduce you to their colleagues uh, who hang on the wall next to them. They'll introduce you to their mentors, the people who inspired them. And you'll learn about artists who were inspired by that artist as well. And so, um, so, you know i've I uh, found that to be a uh, the way that I connected with art. It started with Van Gogh, quickly spread to Rembrandt and then and then others. Um, and I've, it's funny, I've always been drawn to the artists that my art teachers also loved. Uh, the ones that they would hold forth and say, these are great examples, uh, you can't go wrong. you know. So Frank Lloyd Wright and Georgia O'Keeffe were two of the ones that my art teacher, um, by the way, the book is dedicated to my art teachers from middle school and high school. Uh, and through the miracle of social media, I've been able to reconnect with them. And uh, they sent me a photo of themselves together. They're retired now and the three of them got together and they sent me a picture of themselves holding Rembrandt paintings. Um, in, in a frame that's in my office. So, yeah, I think about, you know, I think about the um, the farmers that I grew up around because uh, I grew up really in farmland. And when I was writing this book, I was thinking, I want to write something that the farmers who live down the street would read and appreciate, um, which is not to say that, that the farmers didn't have the capacity to appreciate art. It was that they were uh, very pragmatic people who loved good stories and that was that was kind of what I was aiming at. The book is really a book of stories, um, more than anything else. The first chapter is a little bit of table setting, but then after that, each chapter is a very much a standalone story about a different artist or piece of art. Um, and that was the goal was to tell the story behind these things in a way that that uh, might help eliminate some of that intimidation people feel.
0: Oh, it helped me. <laughs> Somebody fits that description in a lot of those a lot of those ways that you're describing there. Um, this is one that this is a question that i that I had you answered in the book what well, thought it'd be a good chance for you to tell a little bit about it here. Why do so many biblical scenes from Renaissance art depict the characters and scenes as European? I love this
1: question. so we live in a we live in a cultural moment right now where we are um, global. Uh, we have access to uh images and people and cultural uh connections from all around the world at any given moment uh, but that hasn't that hasn't always been the case and so you will find in a lot of cultures as the gospel spread people would paint Jesus uh in the likeness of of their culture, and so in European settings, he would be painted as European. Uh, I was actually just talking this morning with another pastor who spent some time in Tibet, and saw a tapestry uh, of of Jesus looking like a Buddhist monk. Um, you see, uh, you know, African depictions of Jesus where he's uh, presented as a black man. You have these different cultures, and. You know, for us, we get we get a little defensive about that, that because we know that Jesus was a, a first-century Middle Eastern uh, man, and that would have meant that he would have looked a certain way. He certainly wouldn't have been blonde hair, blue eyes. However, um, there was an evangelistic goal in representing Jesus. According to the custom, or according to the uh, you know the nationality of the artist that they were from, as a way of saying, as the as the angel said to the shepherds on the hill outside of, of Bethlehem, unto you, uh, a savior has been born. And so, um, you know, we we read it through a particular lens now, but but the the the, the um, there was an evangelistic aim in presenting Jesus as one. Uh, who was like the people who would be seeing those paintings as a way of helping them understand that that Christ came for you, you know, and uh, and so you know, and also a lot of the the European backdrops are simply because many painters then had never seen the Middle East. Uh, oh, right. <laughs> there weren't photos there, you know, you, you know, and so they 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 went with what they what they uh, what they could
0: see and were familiar with. Oh, it'd be like somebody painting the Earth from space and them doing it in the 19th century, and you thinking, boy, what an idiot you were. You didn't know anything until realizing, you realize it's maybe the most famous photo of the 20th century, the first time we're seeing the Earth from space. Yeah, you just, you don't even know what you're looking at from there. <laughs> so, yeah, you paint what you know uh, in so many cases. Uh, I, I just love that, love that story because that's a, that's a, I mean, a natural confusion point i think at a, at a time when any sort of classical movies we see are spoken with an english accent <laughs> with a british accent so we're, we're rightly i think concerned about some of those aspects of cultural um confusion and appropriation but um now I, as i looked at these stories great stories and i really most of them i didn't know much about Um, I'd just recently been to one of those new Van Gogh exhibits and also had been in in Amsterdam recently, but still didn't know all the depths that you go into on these stories. But uh, I wouldn't exactly describe all the artists that you feature as models of Christian virtue. Not what you were going for.
1: Yeah, there's no hagiography here. No. These are not not the biographies of saints. Uh, (laughs) These are. And what's funny is going into it, um, I didn't. I didn't know what I was going to find. You know, some of these stories that are dark and and uh, kind of land with a little bit of a thud. Uh, you know the the yeah. you know the redemption is is in the wrongness of what we feel
0: yeah. uh, in the way the story is. Well, I that's what I was wondering. What do you want readers to see of themselves in these artists and their work? And that is partly what I what I appreciated, like with the chapter on Hooper as an example. of Just like eh, did not end well. Uh, he,
1: he was one, I think, about the Caravaggio chapter, too, um, where yes. Edward Hopper and Caravaggio were – they were both pretty miserable people right. uh, yeah. and pretty yeah. caustic and abusive to those around them. And, right. their, and their art depicts a kind of a uh, – well, Hopper, his art depicts a kind of loneliness and desolation right. uh, that – the reason I wrote a chapter about him was because I was so drawn to the way that he makes – uh, this kind of loneliness feels so the, so tangible, but but getting into the story, it, it it wasn't so much because he really wanted to fight against this loneliness and help people feel more connected. It was because he uh, he lived in that in that loneliness himself in a very caustic way and kind of made people who were close to him also live in their own kind of loneliness. Yeah, in a lonely in a lonely marriage. Yeah, in a lonely in a lonely marriage. It it's one of my favorite chapters in the book because it is it 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 really is full of injustice. Uh in, in ways that 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 uh I I still find myself trying to untangle the knot of what are we supposed to do with with a story like this one? Um Caravaggio was was the other one who uh you know he one of his biographers said Caravaggio only knew carnival and lent and nothing in between. Uh he was either painting these incredibly transcendent beautiful um biblical scenes that that display just in their composition a some sense of of comprehension, of mercy and grace and atonement and, and all of these things. But then when he'd get the commission, he'd spend it on women and drinking and he'd go out carousing for months on end and murdered people uh, in the process, had to Stay on the lamb uh, for most of his adult life, trying to outrun people who were um, trying to have him put to death for his crimes. And and um, and what fascinated me about that story is is I see myself in that. I see I see all of us as a pastor that we all are these paradoxes of corruption and grace that that we 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 turn ever so earnestly uh to our need for atonement and redemption we say things like the like the apostle you know when jesus said are you going to leave too where else am i supposed to go um and yet at the same time we have this incredible capacity to uh, to sin against the lord uh to do, do damage in our relationships to uh do you know to to um you know hurt ourselves in the process and, and and so his his story was was uh strangely encouraging to me that that uh that 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 we can we can trust that there is hope uh for we who are these living paradoxes of of corruption and and grace at the same time
0: and i think a lot of the ways we understand art now is fundamentally transgressive and more or less it's it's got to be something different it's got to be something unusual I think we, you know, we, we associate artists with the Andy Warhols of the world, there's a strong sense of irony, I would say, in what they're trying to do. But um, I find pastorally, when I'm counseling, when I'm kinda of setting vision for different things, that I almost always come back, and my background is more music uh, than visual arts, um, but I always come back to, well, I tell people all the time, if you wanna to learn to improvise, you gotta learn the scales first. Uh, that's the rule, first rule, you know, first rule of jazz. Um, and I love what you say here, that artists need to master the rules of composition if they're going to break them. Tell us a little bit more about that and, and if, if that has implications more broadly out of life or if I need to stop that line. Yeah, no, that's, that's
1: something that you see over and over again. There's, the, um, there's a Picasso uh, that hangs in the, I think it might be the Met uh, in New York City where it's a um a doctor at a girl's bedside and it's it's as realistic a painting as you'll ever see uh it looks like it could have been done by um Mm. any of the romantics you know and, and and uh and you see it, and when you one of the things that's so jarring about it is when you see Picasso's name next to it, and you think that doesn't yeah. look like a Picasso. <laughs> yeah. But what he's, but it was it was early, an early work of his. But it, what he's showing us is he knew, he knew how to paint people. Uh, he knew how to he knew how to create a scene that was as 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 good as anything else anybody was doing. And in order for him to um, create what did he what he you know the cubist stuff that he ended up doing that everybody kind of knows him for, he had to know how to do it right in order to how to break those rules in a way that would not look like complete chaos and, and, and disorder. Um, and uh, you see that with, with all of these painters. There's a there's a, uh, a story, I think it's in uh, The War of Art, that Stephen Pressfield book, where he talks about a college professor who uh, had a pottery class, and he told his students, um, your grade, you can choose how you get your grade. Uh, you can get your grade based on tonnage. You know, how much pottery can you make in this class? If you make this many pounds, you get this grade. If you make this many pounds, you get this grade. Or you can turn in one piece and be graded solely on that one piece. And you can have the entire semester to just make your one piece. And uh, what, he, what he found was that the students who went the direction of sheer tonnage made better pieces. Uh-huh. Um and uh and it was because they of repetition and it was mm-hmm. because they just kept going and going and going and and they didn't have the time to stop and get myopic about um the you know crafting this perfect piece whereas the other person would have been just all up in their up in their head but it's one of the things you see over and over again with these artists is that there's a discipline to the craft um that you practice and you drill on and you and you keep keep doing it. And that is unto the end of some of these things that that now hang in museums. Uh, but so much of life is that way, right? I mean, so much of ministry is, I mean, we even talk about the Christian life as something we practice. Uh, and I take that to be quite literally, like we practice it like you would practice an instrument or you would practice a sport, um, that prayer is something we practice. The more we do it, the better we get at it, if, if you can say that about prayer, you know, that, that there's a, there becomes a—we go from being unfamiliar to being intimate with these disciplines of, of reading Scripture and praying and even learning how to be part of a congregation, part of the body of Christ, you know, that these are things that don't just automatically happen when you walk in the room. You can do them when you walk in the room, but as you practice them, you find a greater a greater joy and
0: familiarity with them. For some reason, I think a lot of Christians today associate, um, well, they think of authenticity as the, the pinnacle of experience, and they think that if you work hard at something, it must not be authentic. It, 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 like authenticity comes along with sort of natural expression, more or less, and I think that's a, a good observation that you bring out in the book, is that these artists didn't just sort of sit around and wait for inspiration. And then realize it on the canvas, but especially in the chapter on the lens. Um, in there, it's I mean, this is this is difficult work. Um, I mean, I think we I think we gather that when we see Michelangelo's David. But sometimes we assume that people who are good at something just must be naturally gifted at that. And these people are obviously gifted. But th- what the the classic works only come when it's the combination of that giftedness with serious dedication, not to mention then also opportunity.
1: Yeah. I mean, and there's, there's no way around it. And we really, whatever the craft is that we work on uh, or, or whatever the thing is we practice, we also stand on the shoulders of people who have come before us who have um, created ways for us to be able to do the things that we're trying to do in order to show, show our, our inspiration and our authenticity. You know, like even now we're, we're talking, through laptops and microphones, you know, in, in well lit rooms because people invented, you know, uh, light bulbs and, all of the and above. Yeah. All, all of the above. <laughs> and and even for painters, you know, the, the somebody had to weave the canvases and somebody had to make the brushes and somebody there's a part in the book where I talk about the invention of the tin paint tube. Yeah, that was interesting. And how it just changed it changed art. Like you can go into a museum and um The early 1800s uh, art looks one way, and from the mid 1800s on, it looks another way. And the reason it looks another way is because of this invention of the paint tube, where painters weren't shackled to their interior studios uh, where their paint was, but they could throw it all in a in a duffel and go outside with their easel and paint outside. And what happens is you see it with Impressionism, you see it with all these, um, all that, all the French. Uh, paintings of the mid 1800s that, that there's just this brightness that all of a sudden appears at a certain point in time, um, and it's uh, you know largely because of of the portability of the medium uh, that that came about. There's a Van Gogh painting that was found. Uh, somebody found a uh, grasshopper leg in the painting. There was an article about it online. Um, where he was painting outside and a grasshopper got stuck to it and you know, and the leg is still there. If I Colin, if I can find that
0: article, I'll send it to you. <laughs> I like it. Uh, would be fascinating there. Explain what you mean that a great painting will demand as much from you as reading War and Peace in one sitting. That's not just hyperbole.
1: Uh, <laughs> I think that art is a uh it's it's a dialogue. And so when you stand in front of a painting, the artist is talking to you, uh, and you are responding to the artist. And I think that if we want to be people who art is a part of our lives, what it's going to require of, of us is um, learning how to read a certain language, a visual language. Uh, and it really is kind of a language with some vocabulary, where you start to learn... Okay, the use of this extreme contrast of light and dark that you see in Rembrandt or Caravaggio is not just for aesthetic purpose, but it's for narrative purpose. It's supposed to help us know what to look at first and where our eyes are supposed to go next, and all that stuff kind of happens voluntarily um, or involuntarily. But but it's it's uh, that when you look at a painting, you're not just looking at an image, but you're reading a scene um, that has been captured in a particular moment, like Rembrandt's The Sacrifice of Isaac. Uh, is a great example of this, where when you see that painting, he captures a moment. And so the artist is in complete control over which moment is he going to capture in order to tell this story. And it's a moment where the knife is in midair, like the angel has showed up and told Abraham not to sacrifice his son He's got his hand kind of roughly on his son's kind of neck, um, and and the and the knife is in midair because he's dropped it, uh, and there's there's that's a scene that we know something like that would have happened in that story, but Rembrandt's telling us something by making that the moment that he tells. He's telling us something about the urgency, about the relief um About the obedience of Abraham and, and his trust, um, about the 11th hour nature of how God often shows up <laughs> in our lives when we're when we've been asking him for something forever. Uh, and so there, there's you know art will reward us if we take time to slow down in front of it. you know there's a section in the book about how to visit an art museum. I wrote a couple of very practical sort of appendices for how to look at a piece of art and how to visit an art an art museum, because I think we make a mistake if we go to an art museum thinking, man, I've got six hours to do the Louvre. You know, how I'm going to – it's just abandon hope, all ye who enter here. You know, like instead – Pick what you're going to look at before you walk in the door. You know, for me, I'm going to go see Rembrandt and I'm going to see Van Gogh. And there may be some people along the way that catch my eye, or or I may go to a museum because it has a particular uh, work of art that that I'm I'm bent on seeing. And uh, and I'll give those I'll kind of prioritize the time. Um, but I think you know that's that's part of the way that we that we have to read art is we have to say I, I can't just digest everything. Uh, and there, there's no time for that, and so so we have to we have to pace ourselves and, and uh, um, kind of learn a vocabulary, read the plaque on the wall, but also learn a little bit of of stillness and be okay with saying I don't I don't know that I get everything that's going on here
0: because well,
1: um, you don't have to in that
0: moment. If listeners could go to one art museum. Which one should it be?
1: I would say either the Met uh, in New York City or the Chicago Art Institute, uh the Art Institute of Chicago. Okay. Uh, those would be the two. Now, um those are, you know, in America obviously. I think if I think if you could go anywhere in the world, I'd go to the Louvre, um okay. and and start maybe there, but but uh Yeah, the the Chicago Art Institute was the one that my art teachers took me to as a kid. And so I have an affection. Uh, Van Gogh's bedroom is there. Uh, Surratt's uh, Saturday afternoon in the park is there. Uh, Edward Hopper's Nighthawks is there. There's some really amazing.
0: Grant Wood, of course.
1: Yeah, Grant Wood is there. Um, So I just did an Art Wednesday on him not that long ago on that painting.
0: Yeah, classic Midwestern art right there. Been both places. Haven't been to Chicago Art Institute in a long time. Went to the Met not too long ago. And uh, both met and MoMA, just amazing, uh, there in New York. Now, how does this, you've alluded to this a couple different times, but how does this interest in the visual arts relate to your work as a pastor? Because I think it's pretty clear in this book, you're not using this art really for evangelism or apologetics. That's not the read that I get in the book. So I did, of course, see the preacher in you um, come out in your fascinating comparison between Van Gogh and the striving man of Ecclesiastes. But how do these how do these relate? Well,
1: I think um, it's funny. I, I've I've had a few people ask me um, generally the question, "What does your relationship with art have? To, how does that connect with your work as a pastor?" The, the The more I think about the question, the the more I think. I think we have a problem here. If the question is, what does art have to do with ministry, that's that's problematic. Um, I, because i I, first my love of art and and my desire to be in the presence of visual art and to learn from it and engage with it preceded my pastoral since my sense of pastoral call and so that was part of what was built into this midwestern kid before before seminary was even a word i knew but i think if we want to understand god let alone teach god teach about god to other people and we're not uh cultivating uh, interaction with things that move us to awe and and wonder and uh f- the f- the feeling that we're that we're in the presence of glory um then we're go- we're we're going to give a very incomplete picture of god i'm i'm part of a uh you know, a, a denomination and a theological circle that that uh, that can we can be known for being very heady uh, and very precise academically and having a lot of complicated words and systematic theology that just can be like you know a, a you know teflon um, you know and uh, watertight and uh, and yet uh, I think I think wanting to give people a sense of of who God is if there's not a pursuit of beauty and wonder and the ache that we feel to be in the presence of glory and perfection, uh, then we, we might fall off onto the side of just uh, our ministry just being maybe an academic exercise. And uh, so art has been very useful for me as a pastor because um I don't use it a ton in sermon illustrations. There are times when I will. Uh, but our church is filled with reproductions of Caravaggio and Rembrandt and Van Gogh and Monet. Uh, when we designed the space that we moved into this past November, uh, one of the things I did is is we have about 20 um, reproductions of famous works of art with little plaques on the wall next to it. Because I, I want to... Um, kind of arrest the senses with um, these visual stories of of the pages of Scripture. Uh, but God himself is inherently beautiful. He's inherently glorious. One of the things that Scripture tells us about him over and over, a descriptor, uh, is glory. And... Um, and I think art and the creative process is one of the ways that we as human beings since since creation have, have sought to engage that part of not only who he is, but who we are as people made in his image. So I think it's just a vital part of the pursuit of knowing God in the first place.
0: I love that. I'm talking here with Russ Ramsey. His new book, Rembrandt is in the Wind. I just like saying that. Rembrandt is in the wind. Rembrandt is in the wind, learning to love art through the eyes of faith. It's new from Zondervan Reflective. I'm going to do a final three. And if you feel like going back to your old, what did you learn in the book? You can just you know, insert it in there, okay? All right, we'll do a final three. Uh, first, where do you find calm in the storm? I always ask this question, but it seems especially appropriate if people know the uh, storm on the Sea of Galilee story we started off with.
1: Um, I find calm in the storm – uh, through physical activity, go, going for a walk. I'm not what you might call an athlete, but I love uh, taking long, long walks and hiking. And uh, it it is a um, it it resets me. So that that would be it. Going to I'll I'll go for a, a four mile walk
0: <laughs> any day of the week. Oh, I love that at four miles. That's usually my length as well. Those are nice. Those are nice walks. Um, where do you find good news today?
1: Where do I find good news I find good news in everyday conversations with the people around me um, uh, that's that's it when I talk to my my uh, team that I work with here at the church my family uh, that's that's where I find it got
0: any other other people who share these passions in your church on staff, staff?
1: oh yeah well uh not 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 the uh they all kind of look at me as the art guy uh, okay. <laughs> which <laughs> which I'll take, and I understand um, and yet at the same time yes there's a there's a, a a depth of of we have a lot of fun around here everything i my my entire team is made up of people who find everything interesting uh, uh, and wow. uh that's that's a gift for me for sure
0: look one of the great virtues I think of especially this era that gives you such a perspective on many things is just curiosity Mm -hmm. and just a one, the difference between a Christian who is curious versus not is often the difference in many different, a kind of exemplars of the the fruit of the spirit Um, and just sort of a posture toward other human beings, toward other people. When you're curious about God, curious about life, you're often curious about other people, which makes you loving And kind and gentle toward them.
1: Um, The thing I found most interesting in this book is that, uh, without exception, every artist that I learned about and wrote about um, was creating art in order to figure out Hmm. what they believed about how the world worked. Hmm. None of them. None of them were coming with a realized uh, vision and um, mm. philosophy that they were intending to assert through their art. Their art was their way of trying to figure it out mm. and find their way. Um, and so one of the things that was fascinating to study in each of their lives was not just looking at this painting or that painting, but looking at the body of work uh, and being able to see um, not uh, sometimes progress toward health, uh, sometimes to see a descent into mania. Um, but but all of them, their art was not to declare what they had already arrived at, but was instead
0: to try to figure out what was good and true and beautiful. That's so fascinating, because the very nature of the art you're describing is that it's static. It is a moment in time, yet it's produced by men and women who are in prog- you know, process, sometimes progressing, but sometimes regressing as well, sometimes it's leading to a happy ending, but of course, most famously, Van Gogh never has that happy ending. Last question, what's the last great book you've read?
1: The last great book I've read was, um, I just read a, uh, a, um, I'm in my element here, I just read a a, a biography of uh, Rembrandt. Okay. um, Okay. That, uh, by uh, Helga Kunzel, is her name, um, and uh, it's 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 a short little book about about the arc of his life story, and uh,
0: it was a it was a fascinating fascinating read. Okay, right on theme, right on theme. My guest here, at Gospel Bound this week, has been Russ Ramsey. Uh, check out his new book, Rembrandt Is in the Wind: Learning to Love Art Through the Eyes of Faith from Zarvin Reflective. Russ, it's been a joy. Thank you, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound. For more interviews and to sign up for my newsletter, head over to tgc.org slash gospelbound. Rate and review Gospel Bound on your favorite podcast platform so others can join the conversation. Until next time, remember, when we're bound to the gospel, we abound in hope.